So this morning uh, will be my first time ever preaching, so please bear with me. Um, Kason asked me if I could fill in today while he's out, and so uh, I was happy to do that. Um, this is not something I have experience with, um, but it's something that I, I care greatly about. I think something is very valuable. Um, if, if I didn't appreciate Kason already, which I do, I appreciate him more over the last several weeks. It takes, <laughs> takes a lot to do this, and, uh, uh, but it's something very valuable, so I hope that uh, you get a lot out of it this morning. Uh, we're going to be studying the book of Job, um, not because that's my last name and that's why I chose it. Um, as I've been studying through the Bible, this book really has stuck out to me, um, and it's very valuable for a number of reasons. And so I kind of want to start there and talk about why it's valuable um, I've heard many preachers and writers talk about narrowing Job down. Job is specifically about this one thing, and, and they're right. Like Job does talk about many of those things about our suffering. Job, the book of Job is about our suffering, or the book of Job is about God's sovereignty. They're right in all those cases, um, but I don't want to narrow it down. The book of Job has much for us to learn from, and so that's why I, I like it so much. Um, uh, the biggest thing is that the sovereignty of God is on display. Throughout the entire book, God's sovereignty is on display. And this is something that's very important for us to understand as Christians right away, to know that God is sovereign. If you don't really believe that God is in control of everything, that he's aware of everything, or that he knows all things, that he controls all things, that he created all things, that he's omnipresent, he's everywhere at once, and that he can see and he can be there, and he is absolutely in charge other things that you believe can get out of whack real quick. You, you can really lose track of the truth of who God is if you don't believe that about him. He is sovereign. And the book of Job shows us that in a number of ways. Uh, the book of Job gives us details about creation. In fact, there's more details about creation in Job than there is in Genesis when God talks about creation. Um, there are lots of details, including dinosaurs. We're not going to get there today, but actually when God talks about um, certain things, whenever God finally speaks, God speaks at the end of the book. He actually describes things that are very close to what dinosaurs are. And so there's, you know, in the secular world, they would kind of combat Christians to say, well, if, you know, if God created dinosaurs, why hadn't it talked about in the Bible? Well, it is. It's talked about in the Bible. It's here in the book of Job. Uh, we'll get to that eventually, not today, it's later on in the chapters. Um, it gives us details about the spiritual and heavenly places. The Bible talks about heavenly places in, in many places throughout the Word of God. And Job gives us some insight that we don't get in other places. It shows us what's going on in heavenly places, that God is meeting with his angels and that they have to report to him. Um, but we also learn uh, about Satan in that process, Satan our enemy has access to God in the heavenly places. It's very interesting. We're going to get in that, to that today because we actually cover that in chapter 1. Uh, the book of Job brings, our, <clears throat> brings to our attention many great questions related to suffering. It does, uh, particularly a believer's suffering. And it refutes many false assumptions and teachings related to that topic. Um, the, we live in a world, and all of us at various times probably have fallen into the idea that things are messed up in my life, I must be doing wrong. I must not be pleasing to God. Or everything's going great. I must be living my life right. We all have that. It, it comes up in little jokes, you know, like even with people who, you know, play golf, if you make a good shot, well, you must be living right. Um, in little things like that, it can come up. But then it comes up in bigger things, bigger issues we actually have to face in our culture today because there are pastors and teachers and churches all over the world who teach strongly that you must... It, you have to live right in order to get the blessings of God. And if there's any problem in your life, if you're sick or you're dealing with anything, it's because you're a sinner. And Job, the book of Job teaches the exact opposite, and it shows us over and over again why we can trust God, that he's in control of these things, and that those, those teachings aren't true. Those teachings are not true, and I don't want you to be led astray by that. <clears throat> uh, and that's not to overbalance against what Cason uh, uh, talked about whenever he taught through the book of Hebrews. If you read Hebrews, God chastens those he loves. There's definitely some, you know, if you sin, God chastens you. But it's not uh, black and white. If things are bad, you sinned. If things are good, 
you're living right. Um, it's not that clear-cut and dry. Um, so this teaches us about what Satan is like and what kind of power he has. Um, there's kind of this idea, because we've been influenced by movies and books and things, that like Star Wars, you have the, the good side and the bad side, the light side and the dark side, right? And they're kind of against each other. And God and Satan aren't like that. And we have a tendency to think that like they're in this equal battle. But Satan is absolutely 100% subject to God in every way. He is in no way compared in power to God. Um, we also will talk about that today and talk about how though Satan is not even close to God, we are nowhere close to Satan. Satan is much more powerful than us. But having an idea of what our enemy is like is helpful to us. In any battle throughout all of history, they would send scouts ahead. They would send spies ahead to see what the enemy had. How many men do they have? What kind of weaponry? What are we facing? And Job helps us with that. Here's what you're facing. This is your enemy. This is your accuser. And so Job's going to help us with that as we dig in today. It gives us a glimpse into the canon of Scripture. So the canon of Scripture may be something that you've heard talked about, uh, canonical books, maybe. That comes from the word canon. So the canon of Scripture basically is the book is made up of 66 books. The Bible is made up of 66 books in the modern English Bible. Um, And so the canon is which books are included and why. So the canon is these books that are in the Bible today we know belong because God has inspired them, and they belong here. Some people look to a meeting called the, uh, uh, the meeting of Ni- Nicaea uh, in 300, the 300 AD. Uh, they had a meeting, and they decided on the books, and they just chose them. And uh, some people say they wrote new books and added it into the Bible at that point. That's not true. The, these men didn't decide on which books just based on what they felt or their opinion. We know these books belong in the Bible because they are in harmony with one another. And so I have a music background, and so I like thinking of it in harmony. If you have a choir of lots of singers, they're all singing the same words, but they have different parts of that word, right? If someone is singing something else entirely, (laughs) a totally different song in a different key and different words, like uh, that doesn't belong. And the books of the Bible work like that. They harmonize. You can tell they're telling the same story. Jesus is at the center of the story. We find Jesus throughout the Bible. Um, And Job goes right along with that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, So it kind of shows us a canon because what we see is that Job talks about Jesus. Uh, And as we're going to talk about in a minute, this is one of the oldest books in the Bible. And it's already talking about Jesus not only coming as our Redeemer, but rising and then coming back. It talks about his second return, which we're talking about in Revelation right now. Um, And that Ezekiel speaks of Job, and Ezekiel is a prophet. So God is speaking to Ezekiel and telling Ezekiel things. So actually, God talks about Job as a person. Um, And we know that James talks about Job as a real person um, in the book of James. Uh, And we're going to get to that in just a second. Uh, Job also teaches us, I think how to read and study the Bible better. And this is one of the things that I think um, you'll kind of come in combat with, especially if you're involved in social media a lot. Um, We kind of live in this um, one-verse culture. And so one of the things that Job... Job is really helpful because Job, as you read it and you read along in it, there's a dialogue, there's a conversation going on. So there's multiple people talking. So Satan gets to speak in this. Uh, Job obviously speaks. He's got three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and then a young man comes along, Elihu, and then God speaks. So there's seven different speakers throughout the book of Job. So uh, there's an important lesson here. The Bible is God's word, but not all the words in the Bible are God speaking. And that's an important thing to understand when you read the Bible and when you live in a culture that's driven by social media where it's a one-verse culture, right? Right? I read this verse, this is what it means, right? And we tend, if we're not paying attention and not looking at things in context, we can really get off course with that kind of ideology. And so people do that all the time. Even pastors at churches, they'll read one verse and then they'll talk for an hour about all their opinions and everything they have and and kind of veer off from that. It can get dangerous. So um, one example is a movement called the Word of Faith movement. I don't know if you've 
heard about this before, but there's a movement called the Word of Faith Movement. And the, the basic idea, to oversimplify it, is that because God created us in his image and he created the world by speaking, he's given us the ability that when we speak certain things, those things can happen. We can control what happens to us by the words that we, we speak. This is not true at all, but one of the strong arguments for their argument actually comes from the book of Job. And it's in Job twenty two twenty eight, and it says, you will also declare a thing and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways. And they'll take this verse and they'll use it to support that idea. God says in his word, if you declare a thing, that it will be established for you. Right? Well, this book helps us read the Bible right. Because that is not God speaking. That is Eliphaz speaking in the book of Job. Not God. And God tells us something really important about it. As we get to the end of the book of Job, the very, very last chapter, in 42, verse 7, he says, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, that's who made that statement before, Eliphaz the Temanite, he says, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And so we can learn very quickly that though that statement is in the Bible, yes, it's there. It's not God talking, and God condemns it later. But you would have to read all of this. (laughs) And that's what we don't have enough of, I think. And uh, that's why I want to teach through Job, because this helps us uh, in our own study of the Bible and to be able to learn and to understand who God is, what he's actually said, and how we can learn from it. Because though the Bible says something, It doesn't necessarily teach what someone says it teaches. That's a totally different topic. Um, And then this is kind of met with, probably heard a lot about of uh, negative speech or um, the power of positive thinking. There's tons of books. There's even movies about this idea, the power of positive thinking and not ever saying anything negative and not focusing on the negative and that sort of thing. It's kind of coupled with this word of faith movement that some very well-known teachers actually teach that Job met with his sufferings, his calamities, because he was negative, because of the negative things. Because we will see, as Job is in deep, deep sorrow, he loathes his existence. He begs God that he would die. He doesn't want to live. And they say because of that negative, that's why Job faced his trials and his difficulty. We're going to refute that today in the very first chapter. Um, That's not true. And so that's why... Uh, Reading the Bible in the right way is really important. I'm thankful that this book does that for us. Um, So we need to study God's word often, carefully, and in context. Context makes a big difference. Um, Don't get trapped by that one-verse culture. It says this one verse says this, and it means all this. Um, Read things in context. It's really important. Um, The book of Job shows us a great example of the attitude of a great parent. We're going to dig into that in the first chapter as well. Uh, This is great for me as a young parent, um, but for any of us, no matter how old your kids are, this is a great example of how parents can love their children and direct their their children in the path that God wants them to go. Um, And then it has other interesting things uh, in the book. Uh, If you've ever heard the expression, I made it out by the skin of my teeth, Barely made it through by the skin of the teeth. It's actually from the book of Job. It's the first time it's used. Um, there's lots of phrases I've found out, you know, over the years in our culture that people use. It's biblical. They're pulling from the Bible for those things. But the skin of my teeth, that was the, this was the first book <clears throat> uh, that has that. Uh, the book of Job, um, this is, also goes along with the canon of Scripture. Uh, where is Jesus in the book of Job? And so uh, we actually have, I want to show you from Job 19. I'll have it up on the screen for you as I read it. <clears throat> Job 19, 25 through 27. Job here is prophesying about Jesus uh, and, and his coming, not just the first, but also the second time as we're studying in Revelation. So Job uh, 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. There's his second coming. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What a beautiful statement from Job 
about the truth of who Christ will be. Um, this could only be revealed uh, through the prophecy of God to a person. How could Job possibly have known about Jesus? Um, another thing about the gospel uh, in the book of Job that we learn about is repentance. Um, repentance is something that we've kind of been soft on. Uh, when I was growing up in church and in youth group, we kind of had this sales pitch gospel sharing. It was really, really troublesome. We'd go door to door and essentially would tell people, you need Jesus in your life for your life to be great. If you will accept Jesus, your life will be better, which in a sense is true. But in order to come to a salvation, a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you must repent. All throughout the New Testament, that's what we hear. John the Baptist came teaching a message of repentance. Jesus came teaching a message of repentance. When he sent out the disciples, he said, go and teach a message of repentance. At Pentecost, whenever the Holy Spirit came, you remember they were speaking in tongues in the house and all these people from all these different areas heard them in their language. They're like, how are y'all speaking? Even Someone thought they were drunk even. It was like, how are we hearing the truth about God in our own language? How do y'all know our language? You're you know, lower class Jews. How could you possibly know? And so Peter lays out the gospel for them. And somebody says, what must we do to be saved? And the very first word out of Peter's mouth is repent. Repentance is a complete changing of the mind from, from your way, your, your sinful flesh thinking. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have a tendency towards sin. We all have a human brain that is geared towards sin. And repentance is recognizing and admitting that. I have a sinful mind. I have a sinful life. And I don't want to anymore. I want to follow Christ's way. I want to follow, follow Jesus's way. And in the book of Job, we already see that kind of humility and that kind of message that <clears throat> whenever people face God, whenever they finally see him, Job talks about seeing God, um, whenever they come in contact with God and he reveals himself throughout the Bible, Isaiah talks about, woe to me, I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. He recognizes his sinful nature and he says, woe to me. Um, pretty much anybody that sees God or sees even an angel falls on their face in fear. They recognize our weakness, our sinfulness, that we need Jesus, our Redeemer, to save us. Um, that gospel already is here in one of the oldest books in the Bible, in Job. Um, we see it throughout. <clears throat> so, the book of Job. Uh, circumstances of writing. There's lots of debate about uh, the time that it was written and its authorship. Uh, it can be dated as far back as even before the flood, um, that he lived during the time of uh, Noah, um, that he was alive before the flood, and then he died during the flood because no one lived except Noah and his family, right? Um, or just after. He was a descendant of one of Abraham, one of Abraham's relatives. Um, there's all these debates about the timeline. How old is this story? When did he live? Um, but there's, while there's lots of arguments, um, uh, and probably the best argument is that early Jewish uh, tradition credited it to Moses as the writer, and that he probably wrote it during his time near Edom. So I've got a map here that shows the end of the Exodus. So when Moses led the people out of Israel, right, off screen to the left, they came down into that peninsula and went down to Mount Sinai, and that's where God met with Moses, gave him the Ten Commandments twice, and uh, he gave him all the instructions for the tabernacle, all the sacrifices, all the rituals, all the feasts and everything. And then they traveled up towards Canaan. So you see there Canaan at the very top. That's the promised land. The land of Canaan is the promised land, which is now modern-day Israel, right? That's where they were headed. So they headed up, and you see the arrows coming up, and then they sent the spies in to spy out the land, and they're like, this land is incredible. And they brought back the giant grapes on the, the stick, if you've ever uh, read, read the account of that. But what happens? They doubt because there are giants living in the land. And so God says, this whole generation will not enter. So we're going to wander in the desert until this generation dies, and your next generation will be the ones who actually enter. So that's where you kind of see that loop going around. They wandered in this area. So we're going to find out in the very first verse of Job, 
that it says he lived in the land of Uz. So the land of Uz was somewhere in Edom or near Edom. So you can see Edom right up there. So as they're traveling in this area, the, the strongest belief is that Moses likely met um, ancestors of Job who told this story or had a written version of it that they gave to him or something likely during this time that they're wandering was the time that Moses wrote the book of Job, he was given the story, that sort of thing. Not proven, this is just the oldest, most traditional view of how we came to get the book of Job. Um, but Job himself would have lived much before the time of Moses. Um, it could also be credited to Job himself as the writer. Elihu, which is the last person to speak before God speaks in the book. Um, Solomon, because this is a, a wisdom book, you know, and we know that Solomon wrote uh, the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, which are considered wisdom books, and they're written in a poetic style, and Job is also written as poetry. They credit it to him um, or just an anonymous writer. But the strongest evidence is either for Moses or Solomon. But the truth is we don't know, and I don't want to go any further on it because we don't know. Um, just wanted to show you the strongest claim. Um, another important thing about Job Job is a real person. Um, it's hard for many people to read poetry and to read an incredible story like this one where we get insight into the heavenly realms and all this crazy calamity to just think of it as a story that teaches you a lesson. But Job is real. Job is an actual real person, and we have proof from that uh, from Ezekiel. So Ezekiel uh, chapter 14 uh, verses 12 through 14, I'm going to read for you, and it's on the screen for you. You don't have to turn there. Um, so Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Well, we know Noah's real, right? We know Daniel's real. We have historical, plenty of historical evidence for that. Why would he mention Job if Job was just some story, right? God mentions Job. He's a real person. Um, some uh, in James, James 5.11, it says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. James, the son, or not the son, the brother of Jesus, mentions Job as a real person, as, as an example for us to learn from. Uh, the Septuagint, that's the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was written even before Jesus was ever born. It's called the Septuagint. Um, <clears throat> it's the Greek version of the Old Testament. Uh, there was a tradition that taught that Job was Jobab from Genesis 36-33. So if you're reading through Genesis, there's a long genealogy of the kings of Edom. So we saw Edom before. There was a king called Jobab. Now someone who is incredibly wealthy, which we're going to read about how Job, how incredibly wealthy Job was, usually meant that they were in charge in some way. They had pool, they had authority. So it'd be reasonable to think of Job as a king. Um, and so that's what they taught, that Jobab from that lineage of the kings of Edom was actually this Job from the book of Job. Um, again, not certain, but that's, uh, that's the tradition. Job lived in the land of Uz, which is a real area near Edom, uh, which we talked about, which would be somewhere south or southeast of the Dead Sea. And so that's what, that's what we saw on that map. You don't have to bring it back up. Um, so anyways, so with that said, let's jump in. I'm going to read through the entire first chapter of Job, and then we're going to go back through uh, and stop at a few places, okay? So follow along with me. We are in Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, 
and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons, so talking about Job, his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Incredible chapter. So we're going to go back through uh, slowly and talk about some things. So in verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. The words blameless and upright are the Hebrew words tom and yasar. It does not mean sinless. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, But it does mean someone of great integrity. And it gives us the example of how he is labeled as Tom and Yasar, that he feared God and shunned evil. That's how we know his behavior, what he was like, the way he went about. Um, he feared God and he shunned evil. So he was blameless and upright because of that. Verse 2 and 3. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Uh, So the the statement, seven sons and three daughters. So he has 10 children. Um, the, The number seven throughout all the Bible is often used as a number of completeness or fullness. Um... So this is talking about talking about his children and talking about all that he has. We're talking about the blessings that he has. He's extremely wealthy. This is all the cattle that it mentions. That's currency during this time. This is the time of the patriarchs. This is before there are priests. This is before there are kings. Um, well, in Israel at least. Um, and so the currency is cattle. And so it's talking about just how blessed he is. Just how much he has. He is truly blessed of God. He has a full house. Um, His fields are full. And so it's just talking about this great blessing of God. But I want you to notice 
that verse 2 is not a result of verse 1. So here's where that, that, um, some of that false teaching can come in. That because he was blameless and upright, he was blessed. That's not what this says. That's not what this teaches. It's not because he feared God and shunned evil that God blessed him. It's just giving us all the description of Job. Does that make sense? Because we're going to see very soon that verse um, verse 2 will change. And verse 3 will change. But verse 1 will not. Okay? So we're going to see verse, verse 2 and 3 are not a result of verse 1. It's not saying because of those things God has blessed Job. And so that's, a, that's another thing to avoid. Verse 4. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Uh, appointed day here, uh, it could mean birthday, each his appointed day, 10 children, 10 different birthdays throughout the year. Um, it could be appointed feast. Job isn't an Israelite. He's not a descendant of Abraham. Um, but obviously they, the word for God in all of this is Yahweh, so they worship the God of Abraham. Um, they could have learned about some of the feasts uh, that uh, God's children followed. So it could be that. Um, we don't know. Um, verse 5. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. So here's our first example of how great, uh, an example of a great parent that Job is to us. Um, Job is an example of a loving parent, a priest, and an intercessor. This is before the time of the tabernacle or the temple. So whenever the Israelites established all that, they had priests who would offer sacrifices for the the people. Um, At every point in history, Sacrifice was required to atone or pay the penalty for or redeem us for our sins. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. So we're all grateful that we live post-Jesus because his was once and for all. But at one, at, throughout history for the Jews, they had to sacrifice animals in order to pay the sacrifice for their sins. But they had to continually do it because it was never good enough. Um, so before there were priests, it was the heads of households that would do it. Um, We see sacrifice as early as Cain and Abel, and that's what caused the fight between them. Cain offered a sacrifice to God. Abel offered. Abel's was accepted. So Cain hated him, and he killed him. Um, We already see sacrifice that early on. This sacrificing goes on. And so here's an example of Job standing in the gap for his kids. He loves them. He doesn't want a possible sin that they may have committed to be something that comes between them and God. He wants their sins forgiven. He stands in the gap for them. As parents, we stand in the gap by teaching God's word to our children. We teach them the truth of what God says to show them what God wants, to show them what God says, what he teaches, what he desires of them. And we do that. We stand in that gap because we want them to follow him. We don't want anything to come between our children and God, especially their own sin. Um, That's what Job shows his love. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, our kids have to make the decision to follow Christ on their own. We cannot do that for them. We cannot do that. Um, but our job is to stand in the gap and do what we can um, to continually teach them and to show them. We must teach them to fear God and to point them in that direction. In that way, we will serve as intercessors, the way that Job is serving as an intercessor here. Um, He offers a burnt offering as a high priest. This is, again, a picture of Jesus in the book of Job. Jesus uh, is talked about in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. I'm going to read that real. Oh, actually, I don't have that. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 Uh, talks about Jesus being the great high priest, um, that he was the perfect high priest. And it says that he is always standing uh, before the presence of the Lord, mediating between man and God. So Job is being that picture of Jesus that we're seeing, a lesser version of Jesus. Um, 
Notice here it says, uh, sorry, in verse, verse 5, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God. It may be. Uh, one thing that we forget often, uh, it's first mentioned in Leviticus chapter 4, that God uh, sets aside sacrifices for unintentional sins. Unintentional sins. Um, there's a tendency for all of us to kind of think of sin. Sin is only when you knowingly go against God's will. But like I talked about before, we have a human mind. Even if you have received salvation from Christ and he's given you a new life, you're still walking around with a flesh brain and that flesh brain wants to sin. And we sin unintentionally. And we forget about that. We remember the sins that we know we did. But you can go through life sinning unintentionally without even knowing it. And so it doesn't drive us all, all the more to feel like we've got to, you know, just tear ourselves down. But the point is we lean more on God's grace. God's grace is greater than we realize because we don't even realize when we're sinning. Um, God set aside uh, sacrifices for unintentional sin. Um, and that was, again, a picture of the coming Jesus, the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so that's what we see here. Um, uh, it says, thus Job did regularly. Another example for us as parents. This was his pattern of parenting. It was not just an occasional thing. We don't need to occasionally tell our children about the truths of God. We need to constantly. Uh, just like in Deuteronomy 6, it says, talk about this when you wake up and when you lie down, when you're on the road and when you're traveling. And every moment of every day, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, every bit of your being. And we want to instill that in our kids, even if they're adults. We want to tell our kids the truths of God's word all the time, not just on occasion. This was Job's regular practice. Verse 6. So here's where we get a glimpse into the heavenly places. Now there was a day when the sons of God, so the word sons of God there can re is angels. It's talking about heavenly beings, so the angels, uh, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan came. Satan is not in hell. We have this idea. It's been portrayed in movies and all these places that Satan is in a place called hell. And that's where he is. And he's ruling down there. And he just somehow influences us from there. I don't know. It doesn't make sense because he's not in hell. Uh, Satan is not in hell. Satan, in fact, has access to God in heavenly places. Satan is able to come and stand before God. Okay? That's what we're learning. So, so we got that insight about Satan. He's not in hell. He is in heavenly places, and he has access to God. Um, verse 7. Uh, so, I'm sorry, I lost my place. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? From where do you come? God knows. We already talked about how God is sovereign. There's nothing that he doesn't know. So why is God asking, from where do you come? And then it gives us the answer. So Satan answered. So this is important, again, about who our enemy is, who our accuser is, who Satan is. God is not unaware of where he is, but it shows God's authority over Satan. Satan must give an answer and a report. Satan does not have free reign to do whatever he wants. He reports to God. He must give an account of what he's been doing and where he's been going, just like any other angel it would appear in here. Any of the sons of God, any of the angels, the heavenly beings, Satan has to answer to God. He doesn't have free roam to do whatever he wants. He has to answer to God. Isn't that great news? That no matter what we face, no matter where it comes from, what trials we face from the, our enemy, they have to answer to God. And so God knows what's going to happen. Okay? Uh, verse 8. Uh, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. Verse 8, sorry. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, there's something interesting here that I didn't realize until the last time I read this. God puts the target on Job. It's not Satan. Satan doesn't put the target on Job's back. God does. It's interesting. God is the first to mention to Job, to Satan. 
about Job. Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Um, this also, in this we see how God as our perfect parent, our perfect parent example, he's someone who loves his children and he's pleased when we serve him. He's bragging on Job. He loves that Job serves him, that he fears God and that he shuns evil. God loves that. It pleases him. So now we can see a glimpse of what pleases God. Whenever we fear God and shun evil, it pleases him. He's a pleased parent. Um, it's, it shows us what we should be pleased with our kids. We should celebrate them and praise them when they fear God and shun evil. Um, and God refers to Job as a servant. This is a perfect example of a right relationship with God. We serve him. We are servants. We are also his children. He also calls us friends, but we are servants of God. We serve him uh, out of a love and a devotion. Um, and then again, this confirms verse 1 about Job, that it said that he was blameless and upright. God confirms it here. He says he's blameless and upright. So we know this to be true about Job. Verse 9, so Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Uh, the word nothing here is emphasized in the Hebrew, and he's accusing Job of being motivated by blessings and treating God like his meal ticket. Does Job love you just because? No. And so he goes on to accuse him in verse 10. You've made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan is our accuser. He's accusing Job of only loving God because of all the good things. Ah, he doesn't really love you. He loves the stuff you give him. Now, this can be true of us. I can fall, I've fallen into that, that I love the stuff God gives more than the giver of the stuff. Um, we, are, we can be guilty of that, every one of us. We have that sin nature that leads us to want to do that. But Job isn't, um, and that's what Satan is accusing him of here. Um, and uh, Satan describes another great blessing of ours, that God protects his children. Satan is pointing out, you've put a hedge around him. God protects his children. He loves us. He puts a hedge. But as we're about to find out, that hedge is not always guaranteed, is it? Uh, notice in verse 11 uh, that Satan says uh, how he talks to God. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Um, I want to read something uh, in contrast to that. Uh, <clears throat> In Genesis chapter 18, if you'll go there with me, Genesis chapter 18, verse 27 through 33. Uh, this is another, I'll show you where I'm going with this. We're learning something about our enemy, Satan, in this. Genesis chapter 18, verse 27 through 33. So this is where uh, God has come down, he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and uh, Abraham is talking with God, and his cousin Lot has gone down there. And so uh, Abraham is pleading with the Lord that if there are any left, not to destroy it. And so in verse 27, it says, then Abraham answered and said, indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Here we see that repentant type of humility. In Abraham, suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40. And God answers, I will do it. I will not do it for the sake of 40. And then it goes on and on. Let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30, I will not do it for 30. Indeed, I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there and 20, and so on and so forth. What I want you to notice is Abraham's language as he addresses God. Whenever he talks to God, he, talks, he says, I am but dust and ashes. He said, let not the Lord. He's talking directly to God, but he's saying the Lord to him, right? He's saying the Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Uh, 
I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. He's always respecting him. So in a court of law, whenever lawyers address the judge, they say, your honor, right? There's this respect that goes on. So I want you to see back here. So go back to Job. uh, Job 1, verse 11. He says, now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Here we see something about Satan again that we need to know is that he defies God in every way. He is incredibly disrespectful. He does not call him the Lord. He does not approach him in a respectful manner. Satan absolutely hates God 100%, and God who loves his children and whom his children love, he's going to hate them too. Um, So we can see here just the incredible disrespect of Satan towards God and how he speaks to him. Okay, so verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So here God lifts a hedge, right? But what we see here is Satan is on a leash. He can go so far and no further. God gives him his outline. You can strike all that he has. It's in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. He does not have any more permission than God gave him. So he can take everything from Job, but he can't hurt Job. God controls Satan. God is sovereign. He's in control of what he is able to do. Satan can go so far and no further. Uh, Kaysen set me up nicely last week as we were talking about this in Revelation, um, that Satan is going to oppose God, that he's going to fight, but he's not going to win, that he is limited, and he will be cast out of heaven, the heavenly places forever uh, at that point. That's what we talked about last week. So, We see Satan is on a leash. He can only go so far. But we are about to see Satan's power. So, um, verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided them and took them away, Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So we know that God just told him, he's in your power. So one of Satan's powers, influence, I would imagine. He influenced the Sabians to come and to raid them and to kill uh, his servants and to take all of his livestock. This is one of the powers of Satan, Um, probably more so than you and I. We have a power of influence. We see it in, I mean, just the, the profession of marketing is a very powerful influence. Uh, anybody who's on TV regularly or on social media regularly has the power of influence. Uh, but Satan has been alive from the beginning. He, he's much more wise than we are. Here we see his power of influence over the Sabians to be able to do this against Job. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So here's where we see the big gap between us and Satan. Satan has the power to control what's most likely thunderstorm. All right, fire from heaven would most likely be lightning, which we know lightning can cause uh, fires to occur. So we see here, the servant says the fire of God. The servant isn't privy to the conversation that just took place, right? We are. We know what just took happen. He says, he's in your power. So we know that Satan is powerful enough to be able to control certain aspects of this world, such as thunderstorms in some way. Again, he's on a leash, only within God's limitations. But he's much more powerful than us. You and I cannot do that. Um, While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Again, here's that power of influence to be able to speak into people's minds to cause evil men to do evil things. Um, While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So again, he's controlling some form of a storm perhaps a tornado. Um, Now, I don't want to be overbalanced here. I'm not saying that if there's a storm that causes damage, that was Satan. God can do that too. We must remember that the flood was not caused by Satan. 
God sent the flood that destroyed the earth. God definitely has more power than Satan. Satan is nowhere close to him. And so we don't know. I think that's really the lesson I want you to draw out of this. Job is not privy to the conversation between God and Satan at no point. Job doesn't know about that part. We know about that part after the fact. Job doesn't. He doesn't know. The servants who are reporting, they don't know about that conversation. And the point is, God controls everything, including the weather. Satan seems to have some power to be able to do that as well. And so we cannot ever stand back and say, oh, you remember that, you know, those fires that came through last year in that Eastland complex that burned up all those things? That was a work of Satan. I can't say that. That could have been a work of God. I don't know. What we need to learn from Job is that we can trust that God is good and that he has a plan and he has a purpose for all that he does. Um, Job doesn't get answered in this book, by the way. We're not going to get past chapter one today. Job doesn't get an answer for any of this. He doesn't ever. Through the whole book, he doesn't get him an answer. So the good thing, one of the good things that God does through this book is actually for you and me. Thousands of years later, we are benefiting from this story. We're the ones who benefit from understanding God's sovereignty, not even Job. He never gets an answer for any of this. Um, So moving on, um, this is unparalleled calamity, verse 13 through 19. Um, We see what Satan is capable. God gives us one and the other, influencing evil men, controlling storms, that sort of thing. Uh, he's far more powerful than us, but he's nothing compared to God. And God remains sovereign. God is always in control at every moment of this. We cannot lose sight of that. But there are important questions here. So here are the questions that it, should, that it can bring to mind for us. As God's children, are we promised a perfect, happy, and fun-filled life? Do we really have any control over what happens to our possessions? Are even our children guaranteed to us? How much of my hope, faith, peace, and security do I give over to my treasures on earth and forget the creator from whom all blessings flow? These are important questions for us to consider, to really consider and to ask. Because as we look at Job, the answer to most of those is no, I I don't. We're not promised anything. Job was blameless and upright feared God and shunned evil, and this happened. This didn't happen by any fault of Job's. Nothing he did. And then the, the, the last question I, I would want you to ask yourself is, how will I respond when trials come? Because we're not guaranteed that they won't. In fact, we're guaranteed the opposite. Jesus told his disciples, you will face trials in this world. So we're guaranteed that they will happen. The question is, how will we respond? Um, and I want to see how Job responds because It is powerful, and it is beautiful. So let's read that, Uh, verse 20 to the end. And Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job, again, our wonderful example of how we should respond. I want to talk about the word worshipped here. Worship is one of those super loaded words. I I teach this often whenever I talk to people, um, whenever I teach about leading worship. Because whenever we use the word worship, most of the time as Christians who have grown up in churches, it's music, right? There's some kind of connection, right? Worship and music are connected. So when we worship together, we sing together. This this isn't, you know, Job tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and picked up his electric guitar and turned on the sound system and worshipped, right? That's not, this isn't related to that. So I want to talk about this a little bit. The word worship here, I call it Christianese. Like people who go to church and follow in church circles, they have a tendency to use some Christianese and they talk about worship and it starts to lose its meaning because we overuse it and we use it in wrong ways. So here, in this particular passage, uh, it's the Hebrew word hawa, and it means to show. 
um, or to declare. So what we show, we show our worship of God by our words and our actions. So the word hawa here is it's the word show. So Job rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and showed what? That he's blameless and upright, that he feared God, and that he shunned evil. How does he show it? And he said. So the way that we worship really is in all of our words and actions. It comes out of us. If we really truly love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, with all our soul, as the first and greatest commandment tells us, our worship pours out. It is shown. It's shown in the words that we say and the way that we speak. And we see it here, the words that we say and the way that we act. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. He's saying, I never deserved anything. I never really earned anything. None of it was ever mine. That's a really great example. We are simply stewards of what God gives us. We're just managers. He's given it to us. Now we watch over it and manage it. None of it was mine, is what he's saying. And the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's saying, God has every right to do whatever he wants with my things. Because they weren't mine, they were his. This is an incredible example to us. This is why I love the book of Job, because it drives us to humility. Job is humiliated. He's humble, and that's what we need to learn from him. Um, So the other uh, definition is to declare. A declaration or a confession is much more than just saying something out loud. This becomes really critical whenever it comes to issues of salvation. Um, The Bible, uh, Jesus taught many times that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom. Not everyone who says, I'm a Christian, is a Christian. And it talks about weeds among wheat in one of his parables. He talks about um, the, uh, the bad leaven getting into the bread. He, he, he's basically describing non-Christian people who don't love me, who don't really worship me and aren't a part of me, are going to be intermingled. We're going to see lost people filling up churches. And that's what we see. We're going to see that all over the place. Not everyone who tells you they're a Christian and spouts out some Christianese is actually saved. And I think the word confession becomes important in that the verse that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this has led to a practice that I'm not condemning completely, but the repeat after me prayer of salvation. I'm not totally against that practice, but there's a problem there with potentially false confessions because we talked about repentance. If I say, repeat after me, and then I say, God, I know I'm a sinner, and you repeat, God, I know I'm a sinner, you don't actually know it, you just said it. There's a big difference between saying something out loud and an actual confession because a confession like this word worship pours out of you in a genuine way and it's shown in your life. So if you confess with your mouth and with your actions and everything that Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? He's in charge. He's the boss. He tells me what to do. If you confess that because it pours out of your life because the truth is I have placed Jesus as my king and my Lord, the one whom I follow, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so there are false confessions and we have to be aware of that. Um. And so what we hear, see here is a very genuine confession of humility, uh, an attitude of repentance, which is what God calls us to in order to receive salvation. Uh, and we see that here. Um, it's very valuable. So what have we learned about God today? He is sovereign. Don't forget that. He's in control. He's in complete control of Satan. Satan can only go so far and no further. God withholds information from us. He has the right to do that. Job doesn't know what's going on. We don't always know what's going on. Okay, that's not to completely throw away prophecy or God being able to speak into your heart and into your life. I'm not saying that, that God doesn't do that. What I'm saying is he withholds information and has every right to do it, and we aren't always privy to everything that's going on, certainly in heavenly places. And God is patient and loving and forgiving, and he is always good even when we can't see it. 
Um, that's what we can see from our study today. So what should we do? What's our homework? How should we behave according to this? We need to put away our pride. I need to put away my pride and put on patience and humility like Job. I need to fear the Lord, shun evil. I need to continually ask myself and test myself. How much of my hope, my joy, my peace, faith, etc., do I place on my stuff? Okay? How much? Really ask yourself. Really test yourself. How is it shown in your life? How much of your faith and your hope and your joy is placed in the things that you have and even the relationships with the people that you have in your life? And then ask the question, have you put your trust in the great high priest, in Jesus? Have you made the choice to follow him? Just as Job couldn't control the decisions of his children and just as you and I cannot control the decisions of our children or anyone besides ourselves, um, we can't make the choice for our children to follow Christ. No one can make that choice for you. No one can make that choice for you. But if God has revealed himself to you, don't hesitate. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed.